If you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 14. We'll be looking this morning at John 14, verses 1 through 14. The text is also printed for you in the bulletin on pages 4 and 5. John 14, starting in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You may be seated. And as you do, let us together go to the Lord and ask for his help as we come to his word this morning. Our Father, gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love, good to your children. We come this morning, some of us confessing that we are indeed troubled. And we come longing for your comfort, for your encouragement. Some of us may not come uh, come troubled, but we still come seeking your comfort and your encouragement. Would you do that to us by the power of your word through your spirit? May my words be true. May they be faithful. And may you, Jesus Christ, be glorified as we unpack your words here to your troubled disciples. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, as Tim mentioned, we start a new sermon series on John 14 through 16. What is called by many to be Jesus' farewell discourse. We will spend all of this month and the next month working through these three chapters in John's Gospel. And these chapters are very noteworthy, very familiar. They are the last words that Jesus gives in the gathering of his disciples before he goes to the cross. And they're packed with plenty of content for at least one year sermon, let alone two months. For in these passages, we find things like the clearer articulation of the relationship between the Father and the Son, the work and the person of the Holy Spirit, the emphasis on the love that God has for his people and the love God's people should have for one another and for their Savior, and for the call to obedience, the call to suffering, and much, much more. Just as I'm saying that, I'm already feeling the pinch of getting it all done in seven weeks. But the farewell discourse offers more to us than just good theology and instruction. Because in fact, the chief aim of this discourse is comfort. Jesus identifies 
the condition of his disciples in that first verse when he says, let not your hearts be troubled. That word troubled is, is a word that conveys deep, deep sorrow, almost anguish. It's actually the condition of Jesus' own soul at this moment in time. In John 12, 27, Jesus, as he's, getting, as he's entering Jerusalem and knows what's before him, says out loud, my soul is very troubled. And then the apostle in his account, right before Jesus identifies Judas as his betrayer, says that Jesus' soul was troubled. Jesus, at this moment, is troubled by the anguish and the sorrow that awaits him. And the disciples are troubled by their own confusion. Because Jesus keeps insisting that he's leaving them. And they don't know why. And then to make matters worse, he's insistent that there's a traitor among them. And they don't know who it is. And then the cherry on the top is that Peter, their de facto leader is going to deny Jesus in the coming days. The disciples, as D.A. Carson writes, are under substantial emotional pressure and on the brink of catastrophic failure. And so enter in Jesus' words here in these three chapters, these words of comfort from the Lord himself to his troubled disciples. And so I've entitled this sermon series, True Words for Troubled Souls. Because are these words theologically rich? Absolutely. Are they foundational to us in our faith and practice? Without a doubt. But it is because they are such words that these words are also a source of great comfort. To this point, Sinclair Ferguson writes, the point to be understood about this farewell discourse, is that these great truths, which we tend to isolate in a category of doctrines, are in fact the very foundation of Jesus' encouragement of his disciples and even himself in an hour of great practical need. For he teaches doctrine in order to fill our lives with stability and grace. Doctrine is practical. It's not just for head knowledge. It's for stability, for grace in our time of need. And so the entirety of Jesus' farewell discourse is meant to teach us so that we may be filled with that same stability and grace that Jesus offers his disciples here. And for our text this morning, we see that troubled hearts must turn to Christ, fully assured that trusting in him is trusting in God himself. I've simplified the points that you see contained in your bulletin. They're a little bit wordy and the alliteration was a little too forced. So they're simply, let me give them for, to you. Knowing the place, knowing the way, knowing the Father. Knowing the place, knowing the way, knowing the Father. And I pray that the Spirit of God would use these words to comfort our hearts, to stabilize us, and even to fill us with joy overflowing. So Jesus starts with knowing the place. The place is what Jesus, Jesus immediately launches into after exhorting his disciples to believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus locates this place in the Father's house. When he says, in my Father's house are many rooms, this is a passage many of us are familiar with. 
And for many, we probably know the New King James Version or the NIV earlier on, which, which translates it as mansions. And while that certainly sounds nicer, because if you give me a room or a mansion, better believe I'm choosing the mansion. But rooms, however, is more accurate to the literal understanding, which is dwelling places. And it also stresses that these aren't separate from the Father's house, but they're all contained within the Father's house. The emphasis is that Jesus is saying the Father's house is a place with ample room for you, for my people. There will never be a no vacancy sign plastered outside the Father's house. If you want a more thorough description, the Father's house can be called a big, big place, big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. Don't know if there's a big, big table, and I'm not really sure about the big, big yard. We'll find out when we get there. But Jesus is talking about heaven, the lasting place where the people of God will dwell secure for all of eternity. And Jesus says, to the Father's side in heaven is where I'm going. And that's a great source of encouragement for his troubled disciples. He's going there ahead of them. Which then leads to the next emphasis that Jesus puts. I'm going there because I'm going to prepare a place for you. For all of you. Now in my family, before the number of grandkids just got so many, I think we're at 14 right now, our family used to go regularly every year to the beach for a one week every summer. And on the Saturday that the rental began, my mom and my dad, he would just go along with her, would go at dawn and head down to the beach, the two and a half hour drive, to get there before everyone else did. And no, it was not to claim the best room, though they always got that, rightfully so. And no, it wasn't to beat the traffic, even though they always did beat the traffic. It was so my mom could get there, and we coils are a little bit of neat freaks, and so she would clean the whole place from top to bottom, wipe everything down, vacuum everything from ceilings to floors. And then on top of that, she would stock the, the, the refrigerator, stock the pantry. She prepared the place for us to come and to be together. And so my, while my siblings were often sitting in traffic in Philly or somewhere around it, my mom was busy readying the house for our arrival. And thanks to her preparations, when we would get there, we could simply come and eat relax, go to the beach, or just start enjoying time together. And twice in John 13, Jesus has told his disciples his departure is imminent. The time has come, the hour is near, and the disciples cannot follow. This leaves them confused and troubled. But Jesus says, don't be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place in the Father's house for you. Jesus is not skipping town. He's not resorting to life on the run because life in Jerusalem is just too difficult. He's not taking a sabbatical after three long and borderline miserable years of ministry. The disciples don't understand it now, but Jesus is leaving via his death, his resurrection, and his ascension in order to prepare that dwelling place for them. And just in this moment, consider the heart of our Savior for his people. His own soul is troubled in this moment. He feels the shadow of the cross looming over him. He knows not only the physical suffering that is coming, 
but the wrath of God that is ready to be poured out on him. And yet, his heart reaches out to his troubled disciples, who were all going to abandon him anyway. And he tells them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. By the very means of my own soul-troubling and soul-shaking death. But he's not done. He adds more to the promise. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. If the disciples in this moment, if the heaviest sorrow that they're facing is that Jesus, their master, their Lord, their friend, is leaving, this promise hits that sorrow to the heart. Your loss would only be temporary. Jesus is going to be in the Father's house too. Never again is he going to be taken from them. Never again would there be words of departure, a farewell discourse. And greater still, he personally is going to come and to get them. To escort them into the eternal rest of the Father. And while there is debate, I do believe as many scholars would agree, that Jesus is referring here to his second coming. There's a lot of debate of, is Jesus talking about after the resurrection, before the ascension, when he's talking about coming to get his disciples and to bring them with him, he's talking about the end. Very much what Paul would say in his words of encouragement to the church in Thessalonica. When he talks about that day, when those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be always with the Lord. What comfort we have in knowing this. That Jesus' words, that where I am, you will be also. Brothers and sisters, that's where we're going. That's where the Lord is coming back to bring us to. As we here live on earth and deal with the many troubling and discomforting things of life. Loneliness. The reality of death. The pain of suffering. The daily grind of parenting. Battling sin, physical pain, anxiety, the list goes on. We must remember these words that Jesus has said to us. There is a place for us, his people. Home awaits us. He has prepared it for us. It's a place in the Father's house in the presence of our Savior who died for us. And he's going to come and bring us there. Allow these words to comfort, to encourage, even to gladden our soul this morning. Whether you're here troubled or not, they're words of great comfort. And then along with knowing the place, Jesus gets into then knowing the way. Have you ever been driving without any strong sense of where you're going? That's a foreign concept today because of smartphones and almost exhaustive universal service but I can remember once in high school when I was driving in a caravan with a bunch of other uh, teammates for water polo and I got separated from the caravan and I didn't know the address to where we were going I didn't have a map cell phone I mean uh, smartphones were either brand new or not quite developed yet 
So I was, to use the Air Force term, flying blind, or at least that's what they tell me in Top Gun. To say it was a discomforting feeling is an understatement. It was nerve-wracking, along with the means at which it took me to get back into the caravan, which I will leave for another time. But this is where the disciples are at. They feel lost and in the dark, despite Jesus' words of comfort that tells them, you do know the way to where I'm going. They're like, Jesus, if we know the way, we don't feel like we know the way. If you told us the way, I think I missed that lesson. Maybe I was sleeping. Maybe it was one of those late night lessons that I was barely hanging in there. And so you get Thomas, who voices likely what the other disciples are, are thinking. Where he's like, Jesus, we haven't the slightest clue where you're going. And we have even less of a clue of how to get there. Could you maybe give us a map? Maybe some coordinates? Maybe a GPS that would be fairly helpful? And so Jesus, in his kindness, as he always does, answers Thomas with those familiar words, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We know this verse. Most of us have it, have it memorized, some of us unintentionally so. It is the go-to verse for understanding the exclusivity of Christ and the exclusivity of our faith. All spiritual paths do not lead to the same destination. There is no way we can soften these words to suggest Jesus is saying, I'm not the only way, I'm just the, the best way. We can't downplay these words to make Jesus sound a little bit more palatable in our relativistic, everything goes, do what you want culture. John 14, 6 doesn't make room for that. Jesus himself doesn't make room for that. And that should simultaneously humble us and also motivate us towards reaching the lost. If we simply use John 14, 6 as a weapon, we're, we're missing out on it. It's supposed to humble us, because we're not the way, it's Jesus. And other people need to know about the way, so let us be faithful to proclaim it. But here in the context, John 14, 6 is also meant to comfort us. It's to encourage us. The disciples did know the way, even if they didn't feel like it, because the way is Jesus. He is the Savior of his people. He is what John the Baptist declared in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Even though they may feel like they're flying blind, Jesus tells the disciples, you're not flying blind. The way to the Father is through me. And through me is not by following Jesus' example. It's not by looking to Jesus and appreciating God's love displayed in him. And it's not by simply nodding our head in agreement with this statement. We get to the Father because Jesus Christ has secured the means of our reconciliation by his life, his death, and his resurrection, and we are united to him through faith. We professed this earlier using the words of the Westminster Confession. The way to God is through faith in the Son and what he has accomplished. And in case there's any doubt about this, Jesus supports himself as the way by adding these two very familiar terms, truth and life. These are words that John uses throughout his gospel. If you've ever sat down and read the gospel of John, 
You will exhaust yourself if you just note how many times he says truth and life. Jesus as the truth means, as we will see, he's the true revelation of the Father. And a sure foundation for those who trust in him. Examples like John 1.14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side has made him known. And John 8.40, but you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Just a sample of Jesus emphasizing himself as the truth of God in the flesh. And Jesus says life means Jesus is the very life of God. It is found and offered in him and in him alone. John 1, 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. John 5, 26, for the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And then the famous John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. It is because Jesus is the truth and the life that Jesus can then say, I am the way. And we find comfort in his truth, comfort in his life that he offers. And the call then to believe in him as he encourages his disciples to do. And when we do that, we find that additional comfort we find at the end in verses 13 and 14. Where Jesus tells his disciples, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This isn't Jesus saying he's our magic genie. It isn't saying if we throw Jesus' name at the end of our prayers, then we can expect to get whatever it is that we ask for. Sadly, there are plenty of examples of such thinking. It's not only wrong, but it's dangerous, and it treats Jesus not as the way to the Father, but the way, our way, to personal success and gain. Now, Jesus' words here point to himself as the way to petition our Heavenly Father. He's not only the way that we get to the Father, he's the way that we can plead with the Father to give us the help that we need. He is that faithful and daily mediation on behalf of his disciples. Troubled hearts can go to him in faith to plead with their heavenly Father. Prayers in his name are prayers that align with everything that his name stands for. Most chiefly, the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. And prayers in his name assure troubled disciples of their communion with the God of the universe. The God who offers his grace and his help so abundantly as they need it. Some of you are here this morning and you may feel like ships lost at sea. Or leaves blown freely by the wind. Jesus' words here that I am the way, the truth, and the life assure us that is not the case. He is our anchor. This anchor certainly shields us and protects us from the threats of relativism abundant in our culture. But it also anchors us and secures us from the many threats of sorrow to our hearts. We can rest upon Jesus. We can ground ourselves in the truth that he has revealed to us in his word. 
we can know and live out the abundant life he has given us by his resurrection through the power of his spirit. And we can ask our Heavenly Father for help in his name. If such comfort was offered to these disciples on the precipice of catastrophic failure, it's comfort that is offered to us as well. Trust in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Finally, then, we get to our third and final point of knowing the Father. I mentioned this in the last point, but Jesus has perfectly revealed the Father to us. My kids are getting older. They're now five, four, and soon to be two. And as they do, people feel more and more comfortable telling me how much that one or two or all of them look like me. I take it as a compliment. And recently, it may have even been here, I don't really remember, but, but someone saw me with all my kids in the room and just said, yep, there's no doubt who those kids belong to. Again, I'm, I'm hoping it was based on looks and not behavior, but we'll go with it was based on looks. My kids reveal me. You can know aspects about me, good and bad, by knowing my children. But that knowledge, that revelation that you get through my children is going to be imperfect. It's going to be incomplete. You will only know so much about me by knowing my children. You're eventually going to have to come and meet me. But such is not the case when it comes to the revelation of the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus revealed the Father truly and perfectly. As Sinclair Ferguson writes, God the Father is absolutely, completely, and totally to us what he reveals himself to be to us in Christ. And Jesus confirms this as he comforts his disciples with verses 8 through 12. And again, we get one of them being the mouthpiece. This time it's Philip. I'm going to use a southern phrase. I think it's bless his heart. still don't know if I'm using it right. But bless his heart, Philip says, Father, I mean, Jesus, show us the Father. It's a genuine request that Jesus would give them some sort of a revelation, some sort of a theophany, something maybe like Moses on the mountaintop. Show me your glory, even if you got to hide me in a rock. Or maybe give me a vision like Isaiah where I can see God on his throne and the train of his robe filling the temple. And Jesus, with compassion and maybe even a little bit of disappointment, provides the answer. He says, Philip, have I been with you so long that you've missed it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we've read this passage over and over again, so we miss the jaw-dropping statement that that is. One scholar writes, this statement is shocking. To see Jesus is to see the Father. Here, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, comes to its zenith. That's what this commentator writes. Those are not my words. The Son reveals the Father. If it were not true, Jesus would have just spoken blasphemy. But because it is true, this is an immense comfort for his disciples. All their time spent with Jesus has been a tangible, personal, unprecedented revelation of God the Father to his people. They don't need anything more. 
And just in case they think they do, Jesus goes through what he's revealed to them. He says he's revealed the person of God. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? This is nothing short of Jesus proclaiming his eternal generation from the Father. Something we confess from time to time, particularly using the words of the Nicene Creed. He and the Father have always been one from eternity past. And it fits with John's words that I've already quoted from John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at their Father's side, the Son, has made him known. If you want to know God, look to Jesus. And sadly, too many, even within church culture, are looking to know God beyond Jesus. They're convinced there's something lacking in the revelation of the Father through the Son. May we have the opposite reaction, to be driven all the more to know who God is, what he is like by being driven to know Christ more and more, day by day. But Jesus also says that he's revealed the word of God. Verse 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. He makes it clear. He, the word of God, spoke the word of God. Jesus told this to the Jews as they're ready to stone him in John chapter 8. Where he says, if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. He's very implicitly saying, I'm speaking the words of God. Listen to me. To hear Jesus speak was to hear the word of God. Therefore, to reject Jesus' speech was to reject the word of God. And the book of Hebrews, which Pastor Tim just wrapped up for us last week, opens with a very similar confession in its second verse. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. If you want to hear God speak, listen to Jesus. As he speaks the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. Sadly, once again, we live in a day where our culture says, even our church culture, we need more. We need new. There's even a very large and influential church that is encouraging its people to move beyond the Bible for that very reason. May we never make such a move. If such a move is ever proclaimed from this pulpit, even if it's from my own lips, may I be removed. The word is sufficient for us today, tomorrow, every day, until we see the word of God unveiled for us before our very eyes as he comes with the clouds. Let us not grow weary or discouraged in seeing God as he's revealed to us in his son, recorded for us here in the pages of his holy word. But Christ also finally says he's also revealed the works of God. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus says, if you don't believe my words, look at my works. The works that Jesus proclaimed not only screamed out his own divinity, but also screamed out who the Father is and what he's like. And the Gospel of John makes it easy for us, because if you know the Gospel of John, the first half they call the book of signs, the seven signs that Jesus did. Revealing his divinity, revealing who the Father is. Turning water into wine in chapter 2. Healing the official's nearly dead son in chapter 4. Healing the invalid at the pool in chapter 5. Feeding the 5,000 in chapter 6. 
walking on water in chapter 6, healing the man born blind in chapter 9, and then finally raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. All of these works revealed the works of the Father. Creator, healer, sustainer, Lord Almighty, life-giving God, goes on and on. And on top of that, we have his greatest work in saving and redeeming his people by sending his son to die on the cross and to rise again triumphantly. So again, I ask Jesus, what greater comfort do we need? Jesus has shown, as John Owen writes, all the influences of love, kindness, mercy from God to us. They're through him. We know the Father by knowing Christ. And so we believe in the Father as we believe in Christ. When Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me, he's not divorcing himself and the Father, he's uniting them, saying, you believe in him, also believe in me. The two go together. And we can be comforted. God is not unknowable. He's not far off. Our Heavenly Father has been revealed to us so that we might know him now and rest in him all of our days. Would you allow this revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ to drive us all the more to find comfort in the throne of grace, to find mercy and help in our time of need. So as we close, I simply want to ask this question to all of us here, whether this is your first time in the church, countless time in the church, do you know Christ? I don't mean this intellectually or factually. I'm not asking, do you know about Jesus? Do you know Christ? This question assumes trust. Do you believe in him? Which is what John confesses is the whole purpose of him writing this account. Do you know him as the one who has gone before you to prepare a place for you by means of his death and his resurrection? Do you know him as the only way to the Father, the truth and the life through whom and through whom only you can be reconciled to the Father? Do you know him as the one who has revealed the only God full of grace and truth? Troubled hearts can find comfort, the comfort that Jesus promises his disciples by knowing him in this way and only in this way. Again, to quote John Owen in his collected works, this is what he writes, and so I'm going to close, about what it means to know Christ like this. He says, To believe in Christ unto the relief of our souls against trouble is not merely to assent unto the doctrine of the gospel, but to place our trust and confidence in him. And here we have herein the whole of what we plead, divine faith acting distinctively in and terminated on the person of Christ. For the believer here this morning, Jesus Christ is your confidence. He is your hope. He is your help. Trust in him. Rest on him. And for any unbelievers here, 
Jesus offers to be your confidence, your hope, and your help. If you will receive him by faith. May all of us hear him exhorting us as he did his anxious, sorrow-filled disciples. Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Troubled hearts must trust in Christ fully assured that trusting in him is trusting in God the Father. Let us pray. Father God, we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ, you are Lord. You are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through you. We thank you, Jesus, for your life, your death, your resurrection, for being the way to be reconciled to the Father. Would you comfort us by these words? Comfort us that we know there is a place in heaven awaiting us. Comfort us by knowing that there is a way to you, there is a way to you now to plead with you to find help in our time of need. Comfort us by knowing that you, Jesus, have revealed the Father to us. May you give us all the comfort, all the hope, all the encouragement that we need as we endure life in this world. And may it also give us boldness to proclaim Jesus Christ to any and all who ask. To be unashamed about the hope that we have. Be glorified in us, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen.